Welcome to BNV Radio. We're coming to you from Board and Vellum, a design firm here in Seattle, Washington. It's an exciting time to be in Seattle, whether you grew up here or you're new to the area. And we're going to talk a little bit about design, but more than that, we're going to talk about what it's like to experience Seattle through the eyes of a designer. I'm Charles. I'm an architect here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for 18 months. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer. I live in Old Ballard and I've been a Seattleite since I was two years old. This week's show is titled New Neighborhoods. Seattle is home to some of the most eclectic neighborhoods in the country. Each has its own distinct look, feel, and identity. As they evolve, new types of neighborhoods will emerge, some dense, some sparse, but all sensitive to the cultural centers at their core. With the recent influx of new Seattleites, how will all of these new neighbors shape their neighborhoods for the better and evolve? Here to talk about some of the possibilities is a special guest, Robert Meck, who is an architect here at Board and Vellum. Robert, thank you very much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. One of the things we do start off with is we ask everybody how long they've been in Seattle and what neighborhood they live in. Certainly. Um, well, I've been here uh, just a little over 11 years now. When I moved here, I moved to Capitol Hill. Uh, it was billed to me as Capitol Hill, actually, but not actually Capitol Hill. <laughs> I am two blocks south of the dividing line on Madison between Capitol Hill and the Central District. Tax-wise, I live in uh, the Central District, but um, it's funny how it keeps marching purposes. south, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's really no there's no sign that lets you know you're in a foreign uh, country. Uh, <laughs> you know, between Capitol Hill, Central District, First Hill, it's all sort of a, a mishmash of triangles and. Um, in a way, it's great because you can take advantage of all three neighborhoods and um, not have to be tied to just one. Where did you grow up and where did you come from? So I was born in Chicago, but I really can't say I grew up there because we moved when I was five. We moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is a, a very different type of city than Chicago. Um, there are no suburbs. There are no, I guess you could say there are neighborhoods. Uh, but it is a very sprawly central mass of, uh, of buildings. And you didn't go up, you, mo- you built out. So um, the farther away you were from downtown, the zip code changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, the character really, really didn't. The Albuquerque through high school and then um, did a hiatus in, in Minnesota for a year for my first year of undergrad just to do something completely opposite of what the desert you know, it's provided. I visited Albuquerque for a week, mm-hmm. and one of the parallels I can see is how connected to nature Albuquerque is. Because you're, if you go in any direction for more than a minute or two, it's just like, and you're in the desert now, and, and you're in the Mesa. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I kind of love that. It, it is great. Um, I mean, that uh, that kind of openness I haven't been able to find anywhere else actually in the country, and I haven't been to every state, but um, I, I do think that is a special that that is something special about New Mexico in general, which is. Um, that the clarity uh, of sunsets and sunrises and um, just like rolling storms that come in um, almost on like clockwork um, in the summer for the monsoons. And yeah, it's, it's very different than um, out here. Was it like a good part of town to be in and a bad part of town to be in? Or there, was definitely, just- there were definitely neighborhoods that seemed to have more identity than others. Um, like I always, I, I was always reluctant to spend my time in the suburbs where it's just like manicured lawns and curbs and everyone's got their like address painted on the curb and the mailbox with their name on it. And um, when you get back towards the center of the city, Knob Hill, that's where the artists lived. That's, that's where the university is, University of New Mexico. 
Um, that's where I ended up staying when I was going through undergrad. And that was that was a happy time. You know, it's funny. There that's was great. an art exhibit. I think it was Dylan's Video, where they had a bunch of uh, 3D viewfinder type things. And you look in <laughs> and it's these 3D stills of manicured lawns in Arizona, New Mexico. And like sprinklers shooting out on them. Yes. And that's the entire exhibit. But it was really funny. I think part of their like whole thing for that show was that like 1950s suburbia is most uh, preserved and alive and well in the desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of California in that respect. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of sprawl is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way that development happened in that latter half of the century. Mm -hmm. And um, it was you were able to spread out and create these structures and environments that were um, like oasis seas, you know, in the desert. So, I mean, it must be a very different experience being in Seattle where the geography creates neighborhoods almost all by itself before people even start building on it and creating individual neighborhood identities, That was, uh, which has got to be a pretty big di- difference. It is. It's a huge difference. And it's actually it got me thinking about what constitutes a neighborhood, because you can say that it is a culture or the people that are in a certain space or the architecture um, or, or the geography. And learning the geography was is your sort of your first mission when you move to to a new place the mountains were east in albuquerque the mountains were west in denver <laughs> the mountains are both <laughs> this is so it's so disorienting when you first Seattle. get here isn't it yeah um so i think i i think because i lived in different places i lost my direction sense or any you know a- anything that i would have grown up with intuitively to find my way around because those landmarks were constantly changing. I think though in Seattle, um, it's gotten it's gotten easier over time, and I think that could just be a cop out because you, the more you, time you spend in a place, the more you get to know it. You do have an edge here, a, a water edge that really helps define space for you. And I think the I think that was actually my inclination to getting out here in the first place from being landlocked in Chicago or Denver or. Uh, Albuquerque, getting to an actual coastline where it's really the end of something and not just in the middle of something. Right. Yeah, it's funny that it seems like um, not every neighborhood, there are certainly some landlocked neighborhoods. In fact, you and I live live in Central, where like we're like one of the only ones that don't don't have (laughs) coastline. But uh, I I don't know if it was uh, our last show or a couple shows ago, we talked about Rainier and you, Rachel, you made a comment saying, oh, I'm sure there are some neighborhoods near Rainier that lay much more of a claim to seeing the mountain and having identity that has to do with the mountain. And when you were mentioning coastlines and being close to water, it does seem like in Seattle, everyone refers to their neighborhood in terms of where on the coast it is or where the water is or which mountain they can see. Well, and the tricky thing about it, though, is that we have, I mean, these coasts that we're talking about are not the Pacific coast, right? And so we're talking about the coast of Lake Washington and right. the coast of Green Lake and the coast of Lake Union and the right. coast of all, you know, so... <laughs> It can be confusing even as it is if you say that you are, you know, on a lakefront property or something mm-hmm. that that could mean any oh, number of things in yeah. Seattle. And, and if you you can't just like go downhill to the water because you have to be more specific, like in Ballard, where I live, the closest water to us, you know, is down near the Ballard Locks. And so it's 
it's south of where we live and you know, there are mount- the mo- we can see Mount Rainier but then we also the main mountains that we see are to the west so I you know I think learning like for example learning to drive in Seattle was a thing that <laughs> you know I I learned I don't know if it's just the way that my brain worked or something but I learned my way around just you know, riding in the car as a child by landmarks but that they weren't necessarily so I learned like landmarks and paths but didn't necessarily before I actually was taught and looked at a map of the city I if I had had to to draw it out I think it would have been completely crazy it wouldn't it wouldn't <laughs> have made sense because it was we have so many curvy streets and diagonal streets oh, yeah. and just the ravines and bridges and bodies of water that aren't linear that you have to deal with that you you learn your way and you learn a path, but then it takes it takes more to learn alternate paths to get from A to B, and you kind of have to, of course, because <laughs> one bridge goes out and and you're completely in trouble if you don't know another way to. For sure. To so obviously, going. so landmarks, uh, geography, and adjacency to water, but Seattle's neighborhoods also, in my opinion, actually have we have some of the most distinct neighborhoods in terms of culture and architecture and scale um and i wonder and personality and too. personality yeah and i wonder from your perspective uh in the last five years or so when people really started moving here in droves what kind of upticks in the evolution or the change of certain neighborhoods you've observed so you, you live in ballard you must have observed some change there and obviously i don't think i don't know if east lake union even existed in its current form back then yeah lake union has been crazy um you know ballard evolved in a slower way we're building like crazy now and ballard has its has its own struggles that I think are, you know, pretty complex that have a lot to do with it being a really old neighborhood that had a lot of people that just had always lived there and now are having a hard time paying the rent or owning, you know, paying their property taxes in a neighborhood that is going crazy at this point. The, the whole, the city as a whole is is struggling with neighborhoods having challenges that are related to you know, drug abuse and a lot of stuff that we're not really going to, I think, get into in this, but it, it changes the character of these neighborhoods in a certain way where you have this battle between a neighborhood that is rapidly becoming very expensive to live in. And then that pairs precisely with the fact that a lot of the people that can't afford to live there anymore still want to and still do, but they don't have their houses anymore. We so want to divorce economics from the identities of neighborhoods. Yeah. But you, you can't take, yeah, you can't divide it. And I think that's, it's going to be one of those really tricky challenges that Seattle is going to have to figure out how to deal with because it's reaching a, it's reaching a crisis point if it hasn't already of how are we going to deal with the fact that Seattle is evolving and turning to this big city and we're not really doing it in a way that it's bringing everybody along. True. I will say, though, you can't no longer ignore it because now people are being forced to face the fact that these camps exist. You can't just drive by them anymore. At least they're being talked about. And there's a lot of different ideas as to how best uh, face the problem. But was it easier before the influx of people to turn away and go back home? Was it was it as much of a conversation before then? I don't think it was because it wasn't as obvious. Mm. It, you just, it wasn't, 
you you knew where you know where it was more obvious and when you would go different places depending but now it's everywhere mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you can't avoid it which I mean it's it's bad that the situation is there but I'm glad that we actually might do something about it now no I, I think that's true I, I think fresh eyes on the problem are actually what calls more attention to the problem than um, what you've been growing up with for so long or just having been around and gotten used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those new perspectives from our our new neighbors um, actually prompt th- the right kind of change and like the, and the challenge the right direction forward. The discussion about like, did you think about this? Well, maybe you did 20 years ago, but it's a whole different world yeah, than it know, was. So I will say, so, we, you know, uh, Board of Mellum's office is here in Capitol Hill, and we spend at least as much time, or if not more, in this office than we do in our respective neighborhoods, <laughs> the three of us. And uh, before moving here, people didn't talk about homeless or drug abuse at all. Even even in New York, when it was in your face all the time, New York is also like the capital of, of blinders. It's just like you, you tunnel vision, <laughs> you see straight ahead and that's it. And here, um, you know, we all love Capitol Hill, but nobody puts a happy face or ignores the fact that we have uh, homeless and opioid addiction right here in some of the nicest parts of Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about it and just it not being a taboo subject I think is actually a huge positive. Um, and maybe that's something that the evolution of neighborhoods will actually help or, or uh, right. yeah. the, you know, the more people that come here, the faster these problems need to get solved. And yes, it's because of money so that moneyed people can live a certain way. But in the end, I think it hopefully brings that more to light. When you lived in Denver, Robert, you lived in a neighborhood called Capitol Hill. And then you moved to Seattle and you moved to another neighborhood named Capitol Hill. And you, you mentioned that in Albuquerque, you lived in a neighborhood called Knob Hill. And I used to live in a neighborhood called Knob Hill in Portland. And you mentioned that there's one in San Francisco. I mean, so how much of, of how we describe a neighborhood has to do with our association with what we call the neighborhood and what we've, what we've dubbed it and where, how, how does that all come together in our in our recognition of what a real neighborhood is? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's certainly not to say that Capitol Hill in place A is the same as Capitol Hill in place B. They're, they're, they are not descriptors of the neighborhood. Capitol Hill, Denver is ha, has the luxury of actually uh, having a Capitol building <laughs> in oh, the novel. city. <laughs> I guess we forgot to mention the actual Capitol Hill. Yeah, I can tell you with uh, authority that Washington, D.C.'s Capitol Hill is slightly different than Seattle's Capitol Just barely, I mean, just just kind of a little slightly different The crazy people are in the really beautiful white buildings with the big columns. They're not not on the street. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's history to all of those, to, to the reasons that we still have a, a neighborhood called Capitol Hill here with the actual capital being in Olympia. But maybe that does have a marker on how people in the neighborhood feel about their place. And it's it's still important, regardless of the fact that there is not a capital statewide. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is still a place where someone put down a flag and said, no, this is who we are. <laughs> this is where we are. And this is what we believe in. And we all came together and built this place. It's when Capitol Hill... 
and correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, is one of the places, like if you were to name five places that I that uh, Seattle's identity is closely tied to, it's got to be one of those five, mm-hmm. like right along with the mountains and the Space Needle. <laughs> I think that probably would depend on who you ask. People also that live true. in Capitol Hill would say absolutely Capitol Hill is one of the key neighborhoods of Seattle, but... Pretty much anyone living in any neighborhood would say, oh, yeah, our neighborhood is one of the key that's, yeah, you know, that's old Seattle neighborhoods. It's all about identity and, and ownership really of cool. your neighborhood. And yeah. I think people are really take a lot of pride in when they when they choose to move to a neighborhood intentionally in that way. They they immediately take pride and ownership in the neighborhood that they've mm-hmm. decided yeah, to live and in. And, you know, that's the crux of the I wouldn't say the problem because it's not necessarily a problem, but the reason why so many people are concerned with so many people coming into the city is because they have such pride in their neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and it's very different Mm -hmm. in most other cities. It's like they're, they're, they're proud of their neighborhoods and they recognize them, but it's just not the same personal connection they have to like, I want Leshi to always feel like Leshi and I don't want, you know, the townhouses to change that. And I totally completely understand that. Um, So that being said, a lot is said about preserving the identity of neighborhoods and overall neighborhoods preserving the identity of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got a lot of different ideas about how to do that when it comes to landmarking, when it comes to zoning, when it comes to the aesthetics of buildings, both inside and outside. And uh, Robert, in the office, you're known as somewhat of an aficionado of uh, nostalgia and of looking (laughs) back to look forward. And so looking back to look forward on this subject, what are things what are ways that Seattle can hold on to its identity without ignoring the fact that it's changing or putting our head in the sand? Um, it, 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 it's, it's been a very challenging um, education for me to realize that change is not bad. You cannot maintain a status quo and expect to get better. Things are changing all the time, whether you realize them or not. Some people live in their heads. People live in their neighborhoods. Their neighborhoods are smaller to themselves than they are for other people. When you're a kid, you, you know, ride your tricycle around the block and that's your neighborhood. When you're an adult and you, uh, or a young professional and you move to a neighborhood, you adopt that entire zip code that where, where you eat, where you, where you sleep, where you go out and meet friends, that's your neighborhood. And though, and the people that inhabit those places change and the, the culture even of those neighborhoods can change depending on the uses of the you know, the buildings or um, what's there. And that's not a bad thing. I think we fixate on one facet of how neighborhoods change, which is the appearance. That fabric of a neighborhood, that that area remains what it is, no matter what is in it. Um, you don't just change the boundaries of a, of a place because the demographics are different. Um, and so I think that people need to maybe think a little bit more holistically about, you know, change in general and accepting of how things evolve, because are you the same person that you were 20 years ago, 40 years ago? No, of course not. Do you think you think differently? You, you uh, value different things. Neighborhoods are the same way. They're just responding to the change that's around them. You know, it's funny. Uh, one point 
you made, which I thought was really poignant, was that because we're all designers, we focus so much on the look and scale of neighborhoods, and we we almost operate that way in a vacuum. Like, well, if we build X, the neighborhood will be Y, <laughs> and we don't ever talk about the things that take place in the neighborhoods and the events that take place in the neighborhoods. I forget when we were talking, Rachel, uh, you and I, about the farmers markets mm-hmm. and how the different farmers markets reflect the identity of the neighborhoods, yeah. and I wonder if the evolution of the events that take place in those neighborhoods won't help to start redefine them or evolve them over time. It's I think not, a lot of that yeah. is is chicken and egg. You know, mm-hmm. when you have, you know, the events that are taking place in certain neighborhoods, are they in those neighborhoods because of the people and the character of the neighborhood, or are they events that are coming in and then are transferring the neighborhood? It's hard to say. Right. Um, but for the, for instance, the solstice parade uh-huh. is is inexorably connected to Fremont. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, something at least in terms of maintaining our neighborhoods and everything in Seattle, I think we have a tremendous advantage over a lot of other cities to keep our unique neighborhoods because of our geography, because one neighborhood can't sprawl into another because there is a ravine or a <laughs> lake or a canal or a cut or something, you know, all the different geographical features that we have prevent the sprawl within the city limits, mm-hmm. right? And so one neighborhood cannot easily blend into another. So inherently that culture becomes this little, you know, um, incubated egg of culture where if we choose to and we're careful as as people come in, and I think a lot of it is, to a certain degree, there is a self-segregation of people. People move to Fremont because they want to live in the place where there's the highest likelihood of a naked bike ride. You know, well, if that's what you want, you move to Fremont. You know, if you want other things, you, you, there's a little bit of self-segregation about where people end up. And even all of the newcomers that come in, they, they if they... If they know about it, when they pick where they want to live, they a lot of them, I think, are picking their neighborhood because they that's what seems like would be a cool home to them. And so they will also be protectors of the neighborhood, even though they're new to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to abhor a central district and I used to pretend I did live in Capitol Hill mm-hmm. because my within three months of moving here, my car was stolen and found in central district. Um, and I said, oh, all the people that live here are bad. Right. That's just, that's not true. No, not at all. And in fact, it's like, again, it's the, it's the conversations actually happening. People no longer able to ignore the neighborhood as part of it, especially in Central, uh, where, you know, things weren't perfect before people started uh, from higher income higher income brackets started moving there mm-hmm. there was an incredible amount of crime so the the challenge really is how do we improve the neighborhood not change its identity but fix the issues that were ignored for so long mm-hmm. um but it's funny going back a second here fremont is a good example of uh evolution that's turning away from the very public identity that the neighborhood does. You know, there's Facebook and Google there now. There is a definite clash of cultures happening in Fremont right now. The Fremont of old is dealing with the fact that there's a lot of big tech corporations with, you know, not to paint it with a how's the phrase go? A broad brush or whatever, Mm -hmm. but there, there is an influx of some people that are coming to those neighborhoods that are in complete disagreement 
with a lot of the old timers that are there. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a culture war that is starting to happen. And, you know, I, I hope that there is some sort of middle ground reconciliation that can happen between those warring factions, because it would be an absolute total shame if the Fremont of old didn't evolve into something where that history and culture could stay there. But I think that the only way to move forward and evolve is to understand that you you can't you know, things will evolve there if you're a town that doesn't have new people coming to it well that there is no future for that right sure. so uh, and you know you have to have new blood coming in and so there will be these struggles and there will be you know the fremont hippie types that are trying to figure out how to deal with all the tech bros that are coming in and and it's not always going to be pretty, but somewhere there is some more exciting culture that will be a hybrid of all of this coming together that will be the new exciting thing that Fremont will be in the future. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The fact that Seattle isn't stagnating, I think, is incredibly important and something that's often overlooked. The neighborhoods need to evolve. You know, if you look into the evolution of cities like White Plains, New York, or Buffalo, New York, I don't know why they're all in New York State, but, <laughs> you know, cities that almost were, but never quite. Uh, cities that didn't evolve. Sure, those neighborhood identities, I, I guarantee you, have not changed. Uh, and at the same time, you know, life never took off or improved in the same way that they did in the larger cities. Nothing against White Plains or Buffalo. There's actually some interesting things going on in Buffalo these days. But um, again, at a much, much slower pace uh, than a place like Seattle. I do want to talk about a little about what makes Seattle's neighborhoods so unique uh, contrasted against some of the other cities I lived in. In particular, everybody think, knows thinks they know the neighborhoods of New York City. Uh, very famously, they're, they're represented in movies and films. But at the same time, uh, those neighborhoods have an extremely similar building type, an extremely similar scale to the streets and sidewalks. Um, there is not a crazy different aesthetic. People don't talk differently. People don't sell different things or, you know, mm -hmm. different types of events. It's funny. In New York City, the same exact street fair, literally like booth for booth, happens in every neighborhood every summer. And it's the same exact vendors every single time. Nothing is different. And as unique as people think they're like, oh, the meatpacking district or, oh, you know, uh, Brooklyn Heights. They think they know those things. In the end, it's actually much more homogenous. And here, that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. There is such a different uh, aesthetic, such a different building type, a different feel, a different scale. And is it really just the geography? Or is there something m even more special? Like, I suspect it's more special than that here that gives each neighborhood such an interesting... It's definitely a... a there's a culture, but there's also a feeling. Like, I, if I decide that I'm going to leave my neighborhood on some Saturday and go hang out in a different neighborhood, I, I pick where I'm going to go based on what feel I want to experience for the day. You know, how much energy do I want? What kind of, you know, things do I want to do? What do I want to, you know, what kind of food do I want to eat? What kind of bar scene do I want there to be? What kind of... You know, are there going to be a bunch of kids around or are there going to be a bunch of people that are all like barely legal to drink? Like it all depends on where, you know, what feel you want to go. And then you pick your neighborhood to hang out in based on what you're feeling like that day. I think that some of this perception has to come from, from the fact that 
um, at least in my own uh, experience, three out of four friends that I have here are not from here. And so we bring a different level of uh, perception to the neighborhoods um, and what we expect or what we what we do in those neighborhoods. And I, I think somehow that makes it seem different because there's so many different eyes on it than people that grew up in places like, like New York or Chicago that are really that really feel homegrown and not, in my opinion, like a, a place of um, uh, um, transplants or refugees or whatever, whatever we want to call them. I, I can't make a claim for this city, but I do adopt it as my own and I have no intention of letting that go. But that doesn't mean I know, you know, I'm not from here. And we talked about something similar, actually, in our very first episode. We talked about the fact that because so many people are moving here from so many different places, that that exchange of stories and ideas and different backgrounds was going to spur kind of an incredible moment in Seattle's history that the evolution, you know, that we all, even our new, the, us new people, are as different and eclectic as Seattle's neighborhoods are different mm-hmm. and eclectic. And that that can only really be a good thing. It's not like there is one particular place in the world that a bunch of people are coming from to live in Seattle and are just going to make it in that image. Uh, you know, that's not happening. You do right. see, you do see tech companies and tech culture influencing certain neighborhoods, which is a thing. <laughs> and, um, that is what people point to as their big concern. But I would say that not necessarily that it's temporary, but that it's localized. It's not something that I see happening everywhere on the same scale. There's gradations of it. Well, um, and, you know, Seattle has always been a, a tech city. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Microsoft and we it, it's yeah, always been that, in Boeing. Our, in Boeing. I mean, so it, we, it's been in the in the culture. Yeah. But yeah, so it's now that companies are actually moving into the city limits rather mm-hmm. than in being in Redmond or Edmonds or wherever. It, it's presenting more of a challenge to the people that were in the city for the city's sake. So this is kind of an incredible loop because Boeing's been here for how long? And Microsoft's been here for how long? Yet, in the center of city, we're able to ignore it. Does having those companies or those types of companies have a presence in the center of Seattle make it more authentic and not less? I would say it makes it more authentic. Recently, there's been a huge push to have the big corporations come to the city because they want to have millennial workers and quite honestly, most of us don't want to have to commute to the suburbs. If, if we're going to work for the company that, you know, we're fine working for a big company, but we don't want to have to drive out to not Seattle. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> like Seattle ends and it's not Seattle. Once you leave the limits, it's one of those weird, like raised in Seattle things is that a lot of people will say, Oh, I'm from Seattle. And then when you get into it, they're they're not. <laughs> they just say that, and actually they're from some like you have to like drive an hour outside of the city to get where they're talking about. And that's one of those little like Seattle pet peeve things, I think. But that's probably true everywhere, I'm sure. But you know, I think that we're a, a big and growing city, and the in that the big companies are going to come into the city because that's where the people want to be, and we'll be in the city, and the city will evolve and. I don't really think that there is a different path forward at this point. I mean, we 
we have to get denser. The com- and in order for the city to be very vibrant, we need the businesses in the neighborhoods. You know, for example, mm-hmm. right now in Ballard, where I live, it used to be very, just completely very residential. Um, mm-hmm. You know, once you got off of the, you know, all the shipping and fishing areas, there weren't, there aren't like big companies in that area. There's just small businesses and everything. And as great as those are, I think some of the push is to get some bigger, um, you know, anchors into the neighborhood that would hire a lot of people so that it's not just a bedroom mm-hmm. community. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Each economic boom brings with it developments and spaces that later become fixations of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And who knows what those spaces will be. But, you know, I, I forget who it was I heard talking about their parents used to get uh, all dressed up to go in the 60s or 50s to go to Broadway and watch a movie. And that, that you know, that there was this glitzy, glamorous area. And we are, you know, preserving and rediscovering Broadway right now as a hub of Capitol Hill in a different way, in a reimagined way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of all goes in a cycle. Uh, and it's funny, preser- it's funny to think about the future in terms of preservation. It's kind of a logic. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, uh, it's like a, a conflict of logic. No, it's actually great. Um, I mean, our, our, our experiences of preservation only have to do with our immediate experiences versus the experiences we've heard about, right? So there's this period of time that we take with us through our lives hundred years or so, whatever, a generation, mm-hmm. um, from one place to the next. And those are the things that mean the most to us or that we identify the most with. Right. And, and then we go to museums and places to see what's outside of that, you know, um, something outside of Seattle, something outside of the United States of America. Um, mm-hmm. Because we appreciate those things, but we don't have to emulate those things. We don't have to recreate the 1950s. We don't have to recreate um, walking down Broadway, um, or, you know, uh, with fedoras and canes and, you know, after Prohibition ends. But that's what we're doing right after we're finished recording this. <laughs> that is- <laughs> yeah, I have my fedora right I know, that's, and we're all wearing right here. fedoras and, and yeah. we have canes right that's now. Okay. Um, I actually also have a tough final question for you. Uh, spinning off our last piece, what space that was recently created could you see being uh, an object of nostalgia in the future? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I, I'm most uh, intrigued. So this is a scale issue. I think you can pick like a big scale thing or a small scale sure. thing. But the, the the big scale thing that I'm actually intrigued about are the uh, are, um, the the Amazon uh, bio mm. biosphere yeah. downtown. Yeah, I, I think that'll actually become a pretty significant landmark and period in time for innovation and for um, how we thought about the next fifty years. Yeah. Um, I think I think we'll come back and visit that. That's a great pick. It's got kind of a World's Fair thing about mm-hmm. it. At the yeah, same time, like the dawn of our of our sort of awakening when it turn comes to sustainability mm-hmm. and forward thinking and the way we think about cities. Interesting pick. Mm-hmm. Interesting pick. What's your favorite uh, favorite neighborhood in the city? And you can't say Capitol Hill. It's too easy. I <sighs> know it's too easy. Um, so I I have always had this problem. I gravitate toward the fringes of neighborhoods. Hmm. So those are my favorite places to be. 
Um, Shel Silverstein, one of my favorites as a uh, kid growing up, um, where the sidewalk ends. It's where those streets change names. It's where mm-hmm. um, you suddenly go from sidewalks with curbs to, you know, bare dirt. Um, those places are always becoming, and I, those are the most intriguing to me. In D.C., I don't know if we'll put this on the show or not. In D.C., um, you go into Virginia because there's no place for the sprawl to go there because you have different states and Maryland's way more expensive. Everybody's going south into Virginia. And there's this neighborhood where, like, the highways just stops. And there's an exit that goes oh. back. Oh. It does. There's just no more highway. There's just this big sign that says end of highway. But you're driving, like, yes. 60 miles. No, yeah, yeah. They give you all these warnings. And it's just, like, there's a neighborhood out there and, like, a little flag where the future light rail station is going to be. It's the creepiest thing ever. That's I, I couldn't help but think about I don't know why. It's the only thing I could think about when you were saying that. Just, like, yeah, where the side road turns to dirt. Yes, that's where I spend my time. Okay. You get that in a city context, too, though. Like, I-90 ends in That's Seattle true. and there's a sign that says right. end of highway either you get on I-5 North or you get on I-5 South or if you don't pick either of those things it's end of highway you, you die be a red light <laughs> down here that you need to make sure you stop at <laughs> there's actually again I'm probably going to cut a lot of this for time there's a place in Albuquerque that was anchored by a movie studio and an Antoine Predock building a lab I want to say something del Sol. It's this artificial city, not artificial city. It's this like brand new city built around some ridiculous solar technology company campus. Damn it, I wish I, do you know what I'm talking I about? wish I could do some research. Um, well, the pre-doc things ring, rings a bell. Yeah. Um, that's one of his most famous um, developments, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but can't remember the name I of it now. I can't provide insight, no. But, like, really fascinating about how new, truly new neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Like, in Seattle, I don't think anywhere near to the center of the city you can say there's going to be a truly new neighborhood. There's just, like, <laughs> there's no just giant 20-block area of the city that's just been like, oh, we've been saving that. Um, <laughs> you know? Like, it's just... So, that is a really new, new neighborhood. Everything here is just an evolution of something that exists. It's like, it's interesting. We keep talking about neighborhoods and can't put our finger on what makes it, what makes one. There are several, there are several things that go into it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, space is, is one, is one thing. You can't just walk across the street and say, oh, I'm in a different neighborhood. There's, there's a, there's a feeling at some point where um, you become something different. Um, Denver, I just remembered, um, took the Stapleton Airport, the old airport before they had Denver International Airport, like way outside of town. Stapleton was like the biggest development in the country to be, well, redevelopment in the country to go from an, an airport to with all that land and obviously runways are most of it to a new housing area like a new a new neighborhood it was literally it's literally a new neighborhood um and how that fit in with you know 200 years of established you know denver streetscapes or uh neighborhoods and and businesses and you know how does this fit into this place so how yeah how would you take that um 
how would you drop a bomb really in the middle of a city and say, oh, no, there's this new place happening here? That's really the only way that it could happen is that if some giant tract of land got repurposed, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm trying to rack my brain here about like within the Seattle city limits where that could possibly happen. And it would have to be somewhere where... Well, but that's not in Seattle. Yeah. No, only in Europe. Oh, fair enough. Only in Europe, World War II, really was the only time that in a city in history, when a city center was kind of just raised and a brand new everything, scale, aesthetic, um, type of person who lived there just started over. Um, so, fingers crossed, we should be fine. <laughs> Robert, thank you very much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. I almost want to just, re- just record talking about neighborhoods for hours more it's like it's you scratch the surface of this topic and it just gets more and more fascinating and obviously there's so many different aspects to this that we're not touching on on the show like housing and you know through conversation i think we came up with 10 other things that we can we, we could discuss well thank you again um everyone our next night school event is coming up on wednesday september 20th which should not be far away so keep a lookout for that online We will keep you posted as to the subject, which we haven't quite figured out as of the time of this recording. By the time this is online, uh, that should all be on our website and on Facebook. Uh, It will be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. As always, please stop by anytime and chat with us. We'd love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in two weeks.